We have, of course, reduced American history and the complete history of America abridged. But I'm here today to talk to somebody who is expanding American history, not only on a national level, but on an incredibly personal level. Terry Franklin has discovered something amazing about, if I'm counting it right, great, 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 great grandparents. You got it. Yes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 14th year and its third decade, number 685, John Sutton's Will. Terry Franklin is an estate and trust lawyer who in his spare time is chronicling the story of his antebellum ancestors, John and Lucy Sutton, and the discovery of the actual document that emancipated his fourth great-grandmother and freed her from slavery. Terry was gracious enough to tell me all about his journey and the story of his family just this past Friday, January 24th, 2020, which, as it happens, was the 173rd anniversary of the day John Sutton's will was written. I'll let Terry take it from here, starting with telling us who John Sutton was. My great-great-great-great-grandfather was a white farmer and a slave owner in Jacksonville, Florida, and my great-great-great-great-grandmother was described in his last will and testament as his mulatto slave, Lucy, aged about 45. Uh, And the will went on to emancipate or set free Lucy and Lucy's eight children, including her daughter Easter, who was aged about 27, and all of Easter's kids, who were six of those. And the will also provided that the family was to uh, sell all of John's other property and use that to fund the family's escape from Jacksonville during these slave times and to make it to Ohio, Illinois, or Indiana, where they could enjoy their freedom. And they did, in fact, make it to Illinois in uh, December of 1847. And the will was done on January 24th, today, 173 years ago, in Jacksonville, Florida. There's so many ways that this could go wrong, this plan. He (laughs) He provides the money to get them up to a northern state, but it seems like you've still got to have people who are willing to honor the terms of his will. Which is exactly the problem Uh, in in, in our particular case. uh, And by the way, as profession, by profession, I'm a trust in the state's litigator. That means I do will contests, family disputes, things like that. And uh, as it turns out, there was a will contest in my family in 1847. Uh, because after John died, his brother, whose name was Shadrach, challenged the will and tried to keep the family in slavery. If this has been such a crazy experience for me because I've, it feels like it's almost coming out through my DNA, the fact that this story has happened this way. In fact, after I discovered the existence of the will, I spent some time outlining what I thought would be a novel that I was going to write. And uh, I made up a character uh, who I thought, oh, maybe John had a brother named Eustace, because that seemed like a good old-timey name, uh, <laughs> who challenges the will after John dies. And as it turns out, uh, there was a brother who challenged the will, but his name was Shadrach, which was even more old-timey than I could have possibly made up. <laughs> Biblical, even. And how did you discover 
the will in the first place? Did it begin with an interest in your family's genealogy? You know, I, I was somewhat interested in family's genealogy, but not uh, incredibly. But we have these family reunions where we get together every couple of years or so, and we bring in all the different people from all the different parts of the country. Many of us live in Chicago or the Chicago area. Some are in California, some are in Atlanta, some are in uh, uh, Baltimore. And so we have these biannual uh, reunions. And we had a reunion in 2001. And at that reunion, in the materials for it, somebody had included what had been typed up probably in the 80s in a cursive font, for those of you who know what a typewriter is and who know what it means to put in a typing element that looks like cursive. But someone had typed up uh, this excerpt from this will that they apparently had gone out and found in the records in Southern Illinois, and this was some relative of mine probably in the 80s. And what they had done was they typed up this little bit of this will that said, I, John Sutton, being of sound mind, but uh, infirm in body, hereby declaim this to be my last will and testament, and I own the following property, to wit, a lotto slave Lucy, aged about 45, her daughter Easter, 27, etc., down to the little baby Mahala. And so this was typed up and included in this part of the reunion materials, because it went on to explain that he was emancipating them. And I went to that reunion, and uh, after I left it, I thought, I'm a trust and estates litigator. This is a fascinating thing for me, because the excerpt of the will indicated that it was also recorded. There was a copy recorded in Ware County, Georgia, and a copy was recorded in Duval County, Florida, which is where the family had come from. And it indicated exactly where they were supposed to be found in the files, the book and the page numbers. So I'm a trust and estates lawyer. I start calling the clerk's office in Duval County, Georgia, Duval County, uh, Florida. And they say, oh, yeah, we have that file. Um, send us $2 to make the copy. So I put $2 in an envelope because that's what they asked for. And I sent it off to them. They didn't take checks. And that was back in 2001. I never heard anything from them. Oh. I forgot about it. I, I, I didn't think about it for all those years. And then in 2014, I had this great aunt who was still alive. She was 100 years old. She was about to turn 100. And her name was Aunt Viola, uh, and she was the last of her family's generation. But she was this matriarch of the family. She had married a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, she walked four miles each way to get to college at Southern Illinois University to get her degree. Uh, after she married the Tuskegee Airmen, they both were in Tuskegee, and she taught the children of other Tuskegee Airmen before they shipped off to World War II. So, you know, this is kind of the background on the family. She became a teacher. They taught in the Sunday school. She, her husband was uh, Harold Walker. He was the principal of the school she taught. Uh, and so as she... She would always have kind words for people. She would keep track of birthdays and send little notes and gifts. So we were all going to celebrate her 100th birthday in 2014, and I was excited about doing that, and I wanted to figure out if there was some way that I could honor that. Um, and I remembered that that excerpt from that rule from that 2001 uh, reunion, and I dug through my papers and looked and looked and looked. And finally, I found the, the, the thing, and uh, by now, this is... You know, many years since the 2001, and now it's 2014, and I'm a fellow in the American College of Trust and Estates Council, um, which is a fancy way of saying there's this 
organization of trusted states lawyers from across the country. I happened to be the only African-American fellow in the college at the time, since its founding in 1949. But it gave me access to a directory of lawyers across the country who are willing to help out in situations like this. And uh, so I called a couple lawyers in Duval County, and I explained in a voicemail message what I was looking for. And one of them called me back and said, there was a great fire of Jacksonville in 1901. Destroyed all the records. You're not going to find anything. And, you know, that happens with a lot of genealogy uh, that people try to track down. There'll have been a fire that destroyed everything. So I was pretty much ready to give up. And then a paralegal called me from another law firm that I had called. And she said, you know, my lawyer asked me to check on this. And I told her about my great aunt who was turning 100. And she said, well, and I said, I know there was a fire and I'm probably not going to find anything. She said, yeah, but let me see what I can do. By the end of that day, she had sent me an email that said, we found a John Sutton file. We don't know if it's the right one, but we should have it by Friday. And that Friday morning, I went into work. And mind you, this is like a week before I'm going back for my great aunt Viola's 100th birthday. That This is the reason why I'm even looking for this. And that Friday morning, I go in and there's an email. We found it. This is the right file. You know, call me. So I called the paralegal up and uh, she asked me what to do. And I said, why don't you have the picture taken? And so she sent me this uh, email of a photograph of this red wax seal. So uh, when this will was prepared, uh, you know, this is back in the days before lick and stick them envelopes. And you just fold over a piece of paper two times. And, but they would seal it with red wax. And uh, that's this image that I got of this you know, old desiccated piece of paper that was, uh, you know, sepia brown with this red wax seal that was still vibrant, you know, 169 years later or whatever it was at the time. And, and uh, this two-page document that was handwritten in script by a lawyer with uh, uh, marked at the end with an X by my great-great-great-great-grandfather. And at the beginning of it starts with the words, in God's name, amen. Um, and um, it was just this moving experience to actually find and see this will, uh, this image of it. And it, it sort of got under my skin. And, and from then on, it's been sort of one moment of discovery after another in this process. Hello, my name is Nicholas Parsons, and I'm on the uh, Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. I don't know what that means, but if it helps you to go and see them because they're super, please do. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin, and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. We'll be performing the complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged Revised in Arcata, California on March 6th and in Lynchburg, Virginia on May 16th. We'll perform Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, three times in March, once at Washington and Lee College in Pennsylvania on March 19th, and then twice at our home away from home at the center stage in Reston, Virginia on March 21st. 
and will perform the complete history of comedy abridged in Clinton Township, Michigan in three weeks on Valentine's Day and at the University of Wisconsin in Whitewater and the Fermilab in Batavia, Illinois on April 17th and 18th. And then we'll kick off the summer with two weeks of performances of the complete history of comedy abridged at the Hartford Stage Company in Connecticut in June. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with Terry Franklin, who has described the relationship between John Sutton, Lucy Sutton, and their children as an antebellum interracial story of love, which, as he explains, is a complicated and problematic idea. I should start by saying I understand that, you know, certainly by any awareness of the law or uh, of, of where we are in our existence, she had no consent. Right. That's by definition. She had been, you know, she was 30 years younger than he was. He owned her, for God's sake. He could sell her no different than a pot or a pan or a chicken. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how, how does, you know, does a, a pot love the person who puts it on the fire? Does a, uh, the cow love the, the, the person who's milking? And, you know, if you're a piece of property, uh, you know, how can there really be love? I don't know, but you know, in the nature of human existence, things happen and uh, uh, people find ways to adapt in situations that um, you think are intolerable. And I also like to think that maybe Lucy had some agency in this so that even though she was an enslaved person and subject to the control of this man, that somehow uh, she encouraged him or, you know, urged him or pressed him in any way, any way that she could to make sure that her life was going to be better and that the lives of her children were going to be better. And so what we did know was that he set them all free. Uh, and I had this notion in my head that maybe there was some kind of relationship that existed between something, some kind of, I don't know what, I'm Pollyannish about these things. And um, I wrote an article uh, that uh, was published in an American Bar Association magazine uh, that um, suggested that maybe there was this relationship that did exist between them. Uh, and it's proven by the fact that, uh, that he set them free because the will never says that he is related to them at all. He just says, I own the following property, a mulatto slave, Lucy, and names her and all the, the children by age. But it doesn't say that there's any relationship. Otherwise, it exists between them. So I wrote this article. Uh, and then within a couple of weeks of that, I got this email from a professor at Suffolk University, uh, Bernie Jones, and she had written a book, and the book was called Fathers of Conscience, Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South. And she traced historically a bunch of uh, different law cases in which um, white men had left gifts and wills, either of emancipation or property, to enslaved people. And there were cases brought by the families of these men and who didn't like the idea of the fact that there were thousands of dollars worth of property going to someone other than themselves. And they would bring will contests, challenging the wills. Um, and sometimes the courts would uphold the intent of the testator, the person who was creating the will. And sometimes the courts would say, yes, this is, seems to be what he wanted to do. And then maybe the court of appeal would say, that's what he wanted to do, but we don't like that. And the public policy of this state uh, says that we don't believe that free people should be here in this state. And so even though 
the will is clear that this person wanted to give freedom to these people. The state does not allow it. And so we are not going to give them their freedom. We're going to return them to slavery. So that's what I knew existed uh, as part of the history that I was learning at that time. And that's when I formulated this idea in my head that I wanted to do this novel. And since I'm a trust in the state's litigator and they say, you should write what you know, I had included in that novel, this idea of a will contest that would take place. And around the same time, I was newly with my now husband, but my partner, Jeffrey, and he was a Buddhist and he would chant twice a day in the morning and in the evening. And part of that chanting, Nam Yohur Renge Kyo, is a prayer for enlightenment from the ancestors back seven plus generations. And there was this one particular day where Jeffrey was chanting and I didn't always, didn't really chant with him much at all, but one day I chanted with him and during the prayer for the ancestors, I just had this overwhelming sense that John and Lucy, my great, 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 great grandmother and grandfather were in the room with me. It was like they were, I could sense them, you know, we both knew each other's kids. It was, they was like, I knew that they were there. Like I know who my kids are hmm. and they were telling me there was more to this story. Um, and so, uh, fast forward a little bit, uh, since we're reducing history, uh, I have a conference in Florida and I bring Jeffrey along with me. Uh, and, uh, I say, Hey, let's go see the will as long as we're going to be in Florida. He said, Okay, let's do it. I said, why don't you videotape the moment when I open the will and that'll be exciting. He said, okay. Uh, and I have to tell you one other thing. Before we left, I was in the shower that morning and I was thinking about what it was going to be like, that moment when I took the will in my hand and put my finger on that X that John Sutton had made that I'd seen in those images before. Um, and I was wondering, you know, am I going to break down? Um, you know, what kind of emotional reaction am I going to have? And instead of um, uh, what kept coming into my mind as I'm standing in the shower was a scene from the movie Selma, which was out around that time. And Jeffrey and I had seen it four times. We love her. We love Ava DuVernay. And so we're, we're there in the shower. I was standing in the shower and I kept seeing the scene from the movie. And in that scene, it's Coretta Scott King is with Amelia Boynton Robinson, who Amelia Boynton Robinson had been on the front lines of the civil rights movement. She'd been arrested and beaten and been through everything. And they had tried to keep Coretta Scott King away from the rough and tumble parts, but Coretta was going to go meet with Malcolm X because he just uh, left the nation of Islam. And they were trying to bring these two movements together. And Coretta was anxious and nervous about sort of taking this more forward step. And Amelia Boynton Robinson took her arm in arm and she said, do you want me to tell you what I think about it at times like this? It gives me comfort. She said, we are the descendants of people who built civilization, people who crossed vast oceans in the hulls of slave ships, people who overcame terrors and tortures unimaginable. And their blood is in your heart. It's pumping you right now. And, and you're already prepared. So once we got there, these two gay-looking guys with our jaunty fedoras were about to walk into the courthouse, and somebody was kind of applauding over on the side. We're like, what was that about? It turns out, I think they thought we were going in there to try to get a, start some trouble and get a marriage license or something, because this is one of the two counties in Florida that refused to issue marriage licenses to, same, to anyone rather than issue them to same-sex couples in this five months before the, the big Supreme Court decision came down and made marriage equality okay. 
So anyway, we go downstairs, we meet with the clerks in the probate department, and um, they are, uh, they said, we can't find the file. We don't know what you're talking about. I said, no, no, I called ahead. I called ahead. We've driven five and a half hours. Eventually, they give me this file, and it's like the size of a lady's clutch purse. And I opened this thing up. It's on videotape. Jeffrey's got it. And, you know, I, it's like glowing with history and, and weightiness. And, I, you know, I pull out these 40-some pages, and there's that red wax seal that first struck me when I saw those images back in 24, you know, the year before. And uh, I opened up the will, and, you know, I looked at the first page, and I put my finger on that X, and I waited for this, I don't know, this overwhelming emotion rush uh, to come on for me. And I, it wasn't coming because I was like, but what are all these other pages? And I start flipping through the file and I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it really was a little contest. And the thing that I had imagined and believed to be true, or at least I was writing in the novel, the fictionalized novel that I, that I was writing, that the will had been challenged by John's brother, but instead of Eustace, his name was Shadrach. So, um, so that's how I discovered that there was uh, uh, the will contest, and included in the file was the transcript from the trial, which was the judge's handwritten notes. It just goes on and on. It's pretty amazing. But Shadrach lost. Shadrach lost. Yeah. Lucy and her children. Exactly. They made it to their freedom and uh, uh, to enjoy their full and perfect freedom, which are the last words of the final version that's recorded there in Illinois. When I tell this story, I always think about how I used to think history was about kings and queens or famous people or people who are ordinary, who did something special like Rosa Parks or even Brian Stevenson. But I realized that we all are living in the midst of history and it's changing us and we're changing it. And I'm on the same arc of history with my ancestors, John and Lucy, and with my descendants, seven yet generations yet, yet unborn. And the question is, what are we doing to try to bend that arc of history towards justice in our daily lives? So that's my mission, is to bend the arc of history towards justice by telling this story, by sharing it and getting people to think about it. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare County podcast. For more information and updates about Terry's work, you can like and follow the Facebook page called The Last Will of Lucy Sutton. Visit Terry's official website, lucysutton.com, and you can hear Terry speak about his work and present more of his research at the Skirball Center in Los Angeles on February 23rd, 2020. You can then send us your family discoveries via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Terry on Twitter at Terry Franklin LA, and he's on Instagram too, at Terry Franklin. Thanks, as always, to fairly confident he'd have been an abolitionist Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Stacy Taylor. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to the legendary BBC presenter Nicholas Parsons, who died this weekend at age 96. We appeared with him several times on his Best of the Edinburgh Fringe live show, and it was always a privilege and a delight. He was a fringe-stitution and he will be missed. 
And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 685 2055ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. There's a showrunner here who's pitching uh, our uh, limited series to a couple of different networks, and he, but he's he's got it wrapped up in an overall deal that he's trying to do. So it's exciting the idea that it might actually come that way. Well, I remember you had a reading of a screenplay a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. You know, it just continues to evolve, and I remember distinctly you promising me the role of some racist asshole. Yes, yes. <laughs> you remind me too. As soon as we. Uh, as soon as we get our deal, I'm going to be calling you because <laughs> I have I have the perfect racist asshole for you. Yes! Hey, listen, a guy's got to have a niche. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.